The lesson that Americans today have forgotten or never learned, the lesson which our ancestors tried so hard to teach, is that the greatest threat to our lives, liberty, property, and security is not some foreign government, as our rulers so often tell us. The greatest threat to our freedom and well-being lies with our own government. That is one of my favorite quotes from today's guest, Jacob Hornberger. He is the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. Check out his great works, The Dangers of Socialized Medicine, as well as his now 13-part series on uh, the JFK assassination. Mr. Hornberger, thank you for being with me. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to be here with you, Keith. All right. So very popular right now, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and the Bernie Sanders people. Uh, because of their Medicare for All stance. You wrote a book on this called The Dangers of Socialized Medicine. What is the dangers of socialized medicine? What are the dangers of socialized medicine? Well, for one thing, they destroy health care. I mean, that, that's, that's what socialized medicine in terms of Medicare and Medicaid have done. America once had the finest health care system in the world. Uh, inventions were coming into play, healthcare costs were reasonably priced. When I was growing up in the 1950s, uh, people didn't have healthcare insurance they, unless they had catastrophic healthcare insurance. They treated going to the doctor just like going to, to the grocery store as just sort of a necessary expense periodically. And then Medicare and Medicaid come into existence and we end up with soaring healthcare costs, everything distorted, everything perverted, and that's what government involvement has done. So it's a it's a very unhealthy system. It not only does it destroy freedom, it destroys healthcare. But Mr. Hornberger, don't you care about the poor? Don't you care about the elderly? How do, how can such uh, people benefit from a non-socialized uh, medicine? It's it's the health a free market healthcare system is the best thing that could ever happen to poor people. Um, I grew up in the poorest city in the United States, Laredo, Texas. That's what the Census Bureau said about Laredo in the 1950s, lowest per capita income in the country. Every day the doctors' offices were filled with people. This is before Medicaid, and I never heard of one instance where a doctor turned down a patient. And most of the people in the doctors' offices were poor, desperately poor. The doctors knew that most of them could, would never be able to pay their bills. Sometimes they'd bring, you know, like a chicken or something as a gift to the doctor, but most of them could not pay the bill. And yet no doctor ever turned them down. Why is that? Because doctors had this sense of moral and ethical obligation that they were making a lot of money. Doctors were the second largest, second wealthiest people in town, second only to the oil people. And so they felt, hey, we're making all this money. We can, we can return what we're getting by providing free healthcare services to the poor. And it was the same with the local hospital. And that's what freedom's all about. It's, it's the right to choose whether to help someone out or not help someone out. Mandatory charity is not freedom. And so what, what ends up happening in a free market healthcare system is the poor actually get benefited. They have the advantages of a fantastic healthcare system, fantastic doctors, doctors who are enthusiastic about their work, unlike they are today, and receiving treatment at low cost or even free. Let me give you another example of this phenomenon. 
my dentist, uh, who's now retired here in Virginia, that, you know, as you know, there's no Medicare or Medicaid for dental work. And my dentist got together with other dentists, friends of his, in, in different offices, and they would rotate one day a week, they would provide free dental care for the poor. And they would take turns doing that. And why they do it? Simply because they thought it was the right thing to do. I mean, this is what happens in a free society. And part of the problem with governmental security, socialism, is that people lose their faith in freedom. They lose their faith in themselves. They, they, they lose their faith in others. And uh, that's what we need to do, is just recapture that sense, that faith, that freedom really does work. You know, it's always interesting, but every time the statists get their way, like it, they really should only need Medicaid. It's just helping the poor, w regardless of their age. Medicaid is what they should need if they, you know, just want to help poor people. But it's this constant interventionism every single time. It's never enough. I'm curious what you think is the root of the problem of why health care is so expensive. It's Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, it, it, that placed an enormous demand on the system. Uh, it, 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 it's just, it added substantial costs, not to mention the fraud involved with it, the corruption, uh, people getting unnecessary tests. Um, everything was reasonably priced until these two government programs came into existence. And uh, it's not surprising. I mean, when you have a massive demand that the government's now putting onto the system with unnecessary testing and so forth, Healthcare costs are going to soar. It's just it's just straight law and supply and demand, and and so the there's only one solution to this healthcare crisis. Now notice that the crisis comes into existence when health when uh, Medicare and Medicaid are adopted. That's not a coincidence. And yet today, when people see the healthcare crisis, what do they do? They want to add reforms and modifications, Obamacare and so forth. But in order to get to the root of the problem. You've got to pull the weed out by its root, and that weed is Medicare and Medicaid. It's really the only solution is pull it out, get rid of it, repeal it. And on the supply side, we, we, we can't forget occupational licensure. This is, a, this is a racket that protects healthcare professionals from the competition of other people. We need to just dismantle licensure and open up the healthcare system to the free market. Let people decide whether they want alternative health care, whether they can find lower cost health care. And then, then you've got private certifying agencies that come into existence, recommendations from physicians. So this notion that, oh, well, you'll have quacks doing brain surgery is ridiculous. So by, by freeing up the market on the demand side, getting rid of Medicare and Medicaid, along with Obamacare and all other kinds of government interference in health care, and then freeing it up on the supply side by getting rid of occupational licensure and getting rid of all the regulations and the income tax deduction for employers who provide health care. All of a sudden, you've eliminated all of the distortions and perversions that have that have brought about this health care crisis in America. The only thing that's going to work is a total free market in health care. Now, you have said that uh, the FDA should be abolished, the Food and Drug Administration in America. I'm curious how you would uh, respond to the average person who sees the FDA sort of like uh, as water or the sun, just something we obviously need in order to live. So let me just try to steel man the FDA argument, and I want you to respond. 
uh, America needs a Food and Drug Administration in order for consumers to not be subject to the greed, will, or laziness uh, that could negatively impact their lives significantly. They don't have the information just by looking at the product or the service. Therefore, the state is justified in just regulating, common sense regulations, obviously, uh, regulating such a market to keep consumers safe in the best interest of the country. What's so wrong with that? Well, you know, it really goes to the heart of the whole socialist concept. Uh, the idea that government exists or should exist to take care of us, to watch over us like we're little children and to make sure we don't put the wrong substances into our mouth. And that's what drug prohibition is all about in the drug war or mandatory charity forces to take care of our parents with, with uh, social security and Medicare, help the poor through Medicaid and protect us from, from making bad decisions or mistakes like the FDA or other types of regulations. In a free market, everybody's got to take responsibility for the decisions. Now, does that mean that, that people necessarily have to take bad drugs? Of course not. That there's, in a free market, there's drugs on the marketplace. They haven't been tested by the government. Well, people have to do some research. They have to talk to their physician. They have to look at agencies like the Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval or even a medical association like the AMA that is saying here, this is what we recommend. This is what we put our approval on, like Underwriters Laboratory. If you want to try something else, that's your decision and that's your responsibility, but you have to take the responsibility for your wrong decisions. Now, the problem with the FDA is twofold. Number one, they deny Americans to take certain drugs that they don't approve that are many, many times are life-saving because they're playing it cautious. They're bureaucrats. And so they, they actually cost people their lives in many instances because they're not letting people use the drugs that they want. And another aspect of this is that they lull Americans into a false sense of security that by putting their seal of approval on drugs, they're telling Americans it's okay for you to take these drugs when in many instances they're very dangerous. The FDA has made a mistake. These bureaucrats have made a mistake. So in a free market, you don't have any of this, but you have private agencies that are certifying things. I mean, that's what good housekeeping seal of approval is about. Underwriters laboratory is all about. So a free market, people can still do their own research. They can make their own determination and then they can take the responsibility for their own healthcare decisions. Sure. And this, this sort of does have a null hypothesis, as in, in order to refute this position, the statist has to say or explain why a monopoly, the FDA, is simply better than competing regulatory agencies that are voluntarily funded that could go out of business if they, if they simply don't meet consumer demand. The, FB, the FDA has no incentive to do a better job. Uh, David Friedman, I asked him what uh, what some of his red pill moments were uh, when I got to meet him in Phoenix, and he just laughed and said, when the head of the FDA admitted they killed 100,000 people by stopping the release of a life-saving drug. Uh, if someone wants to uh, research that and let me know what he's talking about, I'm still not sure, but um, – but 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 those those are all uh, great points on the uh, FDA. Um, uh, the other uh, way government claims they're keeping us safe is through foreign policy. Uh, you've done a lot of research on blowback. 
What is blowback and why should Americans care? A blowback is the, the, the unintended consequences of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, we live under a system that has what is called a national security state component to it. It wasn't always that way. America started out as a limited government republic. Uh, but after World War II, the federal government was converted to what we now know as a national security state. Now, what is a national security state? It's a massive permanent military establishment, um, a, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, a uh, CIA, an intelligence force, a secret surveillance agency, the NSA. And the problem with, with this national security establishment is that it's always looking for official enemies. It, 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 it needs official enemies to justify its existence. And, and of course, its two most important words are national security. Well, what happens, what has happened since, um, well, even before World War II is the national security establishment has gone abroad and intervened in the, meddled in the affairs of other countries uh, through regime change operations. They have this drive to put their own people in public office, not Americans, but local lackeys that they try to put in public office in order to maintain domination, dominion, power over various countries around the world. So we have going all the way back to like 1953, the uh, a coup in the in the country of Iran, the CIA instigated that ousted the democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. He had been elected, appointed Time Magazine's Man of the Year. The CIA decides to oust him and they put in the Shah of Iran, who's a brutal, tyrannical dictator for the next 25 years or so. Well, now we, we see the bad relations that exist between Iran and the, and the um, American people and the United States. Well, not the American people, but primarily the U.S. government. And we see the Iranian revolution. Uh, and, and so that's a classic example of blowback, that, that here you have these horrible relations along with the Iranian revolution where they end up with a worse dictatorship than the, than the Shah, uh, uh, essentially. That's the blowback that comes from U.S. foreign policy. Another example are the terrorist attacks that took place in 1993 at the World Trade Center, uh, the attack on the USS Cole, the attack on the, the embassies in East Africa, culminating with the 9-11 attack, and then the post-9-11 terrorism. All of this is rooted in what the U.S. government has been doing in the Middle East. You've got the invasion of Iraq after 9-11. Before that, you had the sanctions against Iraq, which killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children. You've got UN Ambassador Madeleine Albright's infamous statement to 60 Minutes that the deaths of half a million Iraqi children from the U.S. sanctions and the U.N. sanctions was worth it. You've got the unconditional support to the Israeli government. You've got stationing of troops in, near the holy lands of the Islam religion. All of this angered people. I mean, it, it put people into a rage, especially killing innocent children. And so it manifests itself by people that say, well, okay, we're going to strike back at you. We're going to retaliate with terrorist attacks. That's an example of blowback from U.S. foreign policy. It's incredible. Every time there's like some crime uh, that I see on TV, the first thing they always say is, well, what is their motive? It seems very cheap that in foreign policy, they just say the motive is they hate us for our freedoms. 
that or the motive is Islam. That seems very cheap, especially considering Bin Laden's uh, eight-page letter to the Americans, where he pretty much explains uh, that the reason uh, they it, their disgust with America lies in the foreign interventionist policies, the deadly policies that uh, they've uh, done in the Middle East. And he mentions the sanctions are the ones I remember. Uh, Israel occupying southern Lebanon, even though th there was a UN security directive against it. Just uh, j just crazy things. Uh, so why would you say uh, that there is a problem with terrorism? Uh, do you think Islam has any aspect to do with it? Or is it simply uh, blowback, retaliation from U.S. aggression in foreign policy? The latter. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, that um, the, the problem is this, is that we've all been born and raised under a national security state. Now, for people in the, in the 50s, uh, when the, the national security state came into existence in the latter part of the 1940s, People in the 50s still remembered what it was like to live under a limited government republic. Today, nobody has that recollection. We've all been born and raised under a national security state, uh, the Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA. And so, and then and, and e even more important, people have been inculcated with the notion, especially in public schools, government schools, that they live in a free country. So in their minds, they look at the national security state as a necessary component of a free country. And the military, the CIA, and the NSA is essentially like a god in American society. I mean, no, nobody wants to question what their existence or what they do. And so when, when the 9-11 attacks came, the last thing people wanted to recognize is that their god was responsible for having created the anger and the rage that manifested itself in this in this terrorist blowback. Uh, so they come up with this ridiculous thing: oh, the terrorists hate us for our freedom and values, and they just they hate our rock and roll and so forth because it's a way to avoid confronting responsibility of what the U.S. government had been doing prior to that time: the killing of the Iraqi children, the brutal sanctions on Iraq, the stationing of U.S. troops and near Mecca and Medina, the unconditional support to the Israeli government, you know, on and on, the types of things that you would think are going to make people angry, but they don't want to do that. Now, here, here was the second thing they brought up, as you point out. Oh, well, this is all about Islam. Islam is a violent religion. Well, this is ridiculous. We've been living among Muslims for, you know, since the beginning of the United States. I imagine there's Muslims even at that time, but you know, if, if Muslims really were the problem, then why aren't there acts of violence here in the United States prior to all this interventionism? The, the, the acts of violence come about because the U.S. was killing people who were Muslims, over, especially those children in Iraq. And when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children, you're talking about many families that are Muslim. And so it stands to reason that Muslims are going to get angry when they see these innocent children being killed. But here's another factor in this. Prior to the end of the Cold War, nobody, and I mean nobody, talked about the danger of Islam. So, you know, you hear it today from people on the right or even interventionists, even among the left. Oh, it's we can go back to the, you know, the, the earliest starts of Islam centuries ago. They've had the, uh, their drive to establish a caliphate and all this. And my response is always, oh, really? Why were you not concerned about this during the Cold War? 
And they're always stymied by this because they know they're not, they weren't. They were consumed with the official enemy at that time, which was communism. So when the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, guess what the U.S. government does? It allies itself with radical Muslims, people like Osama bin Laden. That's who they were supporting against the Soviet Union when it was the Soviets doing the, the occupying of Afghanistan. And at that point, I guarantee you, not one conservative, not one interventionist, not one progressive said, hey, wait a minute, why are you allying with Muslims? They're the problem. They're, they're violent. They cheered the U.S. government and the CIA for allying themselves with, with these radical Muslims, never dreaming that these same radical Muslims would ultimately say, you're not going to invade and occupy Afghanistan either. And when the U.S. ends up doing that, when they invade and occupy Iraq, and all of a sudden the Muslims turn their sights over to them instead of the Soviet Union, people change their position. Oh, no, no, no. It's all because of Muslims, and it's all because they hate us for our freedom and values. The root of this is the national security establishment and this foreign policy of foreign interventionism. Yes, people who want to uh, research that more, Operation Cyclone, I believe is the uh, name of that operation, uh, the Mujahideen. Um, I'm curious, do you think that this is something the NSA, the CIA, Homeland Security, the Pentagon, that they know about and don't care about? Or are we sort of subject to a conspiracy where uh, th they uh, know what they're doing? That's an interesting question. I, I, I don't think they're ignorant. I, I think they know that when they go into these countries and they do a lot of meddling, that the inevitable result is going to be anger and rage. I mean, theoretically, yeah, people could just say, okay, we submit. You're killing all these children with your sanctions. We will quietly accept that. And that's one possibility. But I think they have to know that the inevitable consequence is, is terrorist blowback because that's how people respond in many parts of the world. And they, they knew this like after the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center, which was really no different in principle from the 9-11 attacks. Um, they, were put on, they were put on notice because the, one of the terrorists who committed that attack, Ramzi Youssef, was brought to trial. They actually caught him in Pakistan and they, they brought him over to the United States for trial. And of course, of course, they're they're prosecuting him for terrorism. And at his sentencing hearing, Youssef, I mean, you could just see the rage in this guy. He says, you know, you call me a terrorist, but you all are butchers because look what you've done to these children in Iraq with your sanctions. And so they they were already put on notice there. And there was people like Chalmers Johnson, who whose books I highly recommend to everyone. He's a former CIA analyst. But he, before he passed away, he had an absolute firm grip on the on this this concept of blowback. And for, in fact, his big pre 9/11 book is called Blowback, where he said, if you keep doing this, if you keep intervening in the Middle East with with all this junk, this intervention is junk, you're going to have blowback. And that's the title of his book. You're going to have retaliation. We were saying this at the Future of Freedom Foundation before the 9-11 attack. We were publishing articles saying, here is the natural consequence. So it, it, if it's not certainty that it's going to happen, and oh, and keep in mind, before 9-11, there was also the attacks on the USS Cole, the attacks on the embassies in East Africa. So they had noticed that this was a natural consequence of interventionism. And it's just conscious disregard, because if it happens, look at how they benefit. 
they 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 got the Patriot Act. They got the 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 right to assassinate Americans, to torture Americans. They adopted all these emergency powers. So the national security state actually came out of this with enormous power, more powers than it ever had before, and more money, ever increasing budgets. So I would say it's more a sense of we don't care. It's conscious disregard. If it happens, it's in our benefit because we're going to get more power and more domination over American society as well as societies around the world. Look what, how they used the 9-11 the attacks to invade Iraq. The sanctions had not achieved their end of ousting Saddam Hussein from power. It, it had gone on for 11 years. And so the 9-11 attacks gave them the excuse with the bogus WMD scare to invade and achieve what the what the sanctions had not been able to achieve. Uh, so the the big winner in all this has been the national security establishment. I remember Ron Paul being asked if he'll vote for impeachment of Bill Clinton because of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And he responds by saying, I'll be voting for impeachment reluctantly on this case, but I'll really be voting because of Bill Clinton authorizing the bombing of a pharmaceutical uh, factory, and I, I believe it was Sudan. But he said this sort of interventionist foreign policy uh, – m- maybe you mentioned the sanctions too – but it, it, it was the bombing of a pharmaceutical factory mainly um, that, that this uh, might actually uh, start retaliation and Americans might have to pay. Uh, the price for uh, some some immoral things that Bill Clinton are doing. So that's why he had voted for uh, impeaching Bill Clinton. I, th- I thought that was a great uh, response to that question. Other books that I've read on blowback that I think are great are Fool's Aaron by Scott Horton and Dying to Win by Peter Pape, I think the guy's last name is. Um, I'm, I'm curious, what would you say are some of the big war lies – that Americans have been through. I'm familiar with the WMD scare. Uh, we know the Bryce report uh, going back to World War One had babies on bayonets, uh, that lie about the Germans in Belgium. What are some of the lies the government has used to convince Americans to support a war? Well, there's a, the famous Gulf of Tonkin lie uh, where, where Lyndon Johnson got together with the military and concocted a false attack by North Vietnamese gunships who supposedly had fired on American warships who just coincidentally happened to be patrolling thousands of miles from American shores right near North Vietnamese waters. And they, they made up the story in order to get a congressional resolution that, that, that they got uh, under false pretenses, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, that ends up with an absolute disaster, you know, 58,000 men of my generation killed for no reason at all. They died for nothing, massive death and destruction, uh, all to intervene in really another country's civil war. And another lie that uh, with that war, along with the Korean War, was, oh, the communists are coming to get us. That if, if, we, don't, if we don't send troops over there, uh, the communists before long will be over here taking over the federal government, running the IRS and the interstate highway system. And it was all ridiculous. But this is what a national security state does. It always does. It conjures up enemies, official enemies. It's got to keep people scared. It's got to keep people terrified so that they can say, oh, thank goodness we have the CIA and the, and the NSA and the Pentagon to protect us from all these scary things in the world. 
Well, never mind that they're out there producing a lot of these scary things. Uh, World War II. I mean, you know, there's just no question about the fact that that Franklin Roosevelt wanted in that war. The American people said no. They were overwhelmingly opposed to the war. And Roosevelt did everything he could to first provoke the Germans into attacking. And when they wouldn't take his bait, he goes into the Pacific as a backdoor to the war and starts provoking the Japanese with the intent that they would attack first so then he could say, oh, well, this is a day of infamy. We've been attacked. We were innocent. We were minding our own business. When in fact, that's precisely what he was aiming for with his freeze on Japanese assets, the embargo on their oil, which they desperately needed for their war machine in China, which he knew. And so then when, when Pearl Harbor hits, he, he acts innocent. Oh my gosh, we're all shocked over this. Well, he couldn't have been too shocked because this is exactly what he wanted. And even, even Roosevelt apologists will acknowledge that he was lying about all this and that it was a good thing he did. Well, I don't think it was such a good thing he did. I think in a, in a representative democracy, it is up to the people to decide whether they're going to go to war. And that's Congress's job by issuing a declaration of war. And when Roosevelt knew he couldn't get that declaration of war, he had no business going and circumventing it by provoking the Japanese into attacking. Yeah, there's a uh, an article, uh, I believe it's January 2nd, 1972, the New York Times published, it's called War Entry Plans, and it documents, uh, it was based on the documents released by the British cabinet, and it's Churchill saying, just spoke with Franklin Roosevelt in August of 41. He says he's doing everything to provoke an attack. This was also confirmed in a document called the McCullen Memo, which was found in the Freedom of Information Act and published in a book called Day of Deceit by Robert Stinnett. Uh, and then the Gulf of Tonkin. It's unbelievable watching Robert McNamara in that uh, movie, The Fog of War, just be like, well... We thought there was an attack. Turns out it was a miscommunication. Moving on, it, it's just so frustrating. And then after that, he becomes head of the World Bank, which is interesting because after Wolfowitz lies us into Iraq, he becomes president of the World Bank. So you have sort of this general understanding. Lie the U.S. into the war and you get this big prize at uh, at the end of it. Um, a lot. Of, uh, any, any more war lies come to mind? Uh, no, well, of course, the WMD um, deal to, to invade Iraq, uh, which was bogus from the very beginning. Well, there's also the, the, the lie with respect to the invasion of Afghanistan, where they said that, oh, well, the reason we were invaded was because the Taliban government was complicit in these attacks by harboring bin Laden. Well, that's not why they invaded uh, Afghanistan. There, there's no evidence at all that the Taliban regime was complicit in the 9-11 attacks. And this is confirmed by the fact that President Bush uh, demanded that the Taliban regime turn over bin Laden, that they essentially extradite bin Laden. And there was no extradition treaty with, with Afghanistan. So he could do all the demanding he wants, but if there's no extradition treaty under international law, the Afghan government's not required to turn over a criminal suspect. And that's what what he was, a criminal suspect. Terrorism is a federal criminal offense. But even then, the Taliban regime said, look, we're willing to talk, show us your evidence, and we'll, and we'll turn him over to an independent regime that could then try him, and uh, like the Hague or whatever. And, and Bush said no, 
you will unconditionally comply with our extradition demand. And when the Taliban regime said, no, we're not going to do that, then they invaded. So the reason they invaded is not because the Afghan regime was complicit by har knowingly harboring bin Laden, knowing that he was going to commit these attacks. The reason they invaded was because the Taliban regime refused to comply with uh, Bush's unconditional extradition demand. Scott Horton, in his great book, Fool's Aaron, goes over uh, the offers made for uh, them to hand over bin Laden to the U.S. Or I think the final condition was uh, the Taliban will hand them over to any third party. So, uh, so the demand started real high, like, you have to give us evidence. And, uh, okay, you know what, F forget the evidence, any third party will hand them over to. And the Bush administration rejected that. Bush then talks about it in his book, Decision Points, uh, which I go over, I read directly from in my interview with Scott Horton called American Imperialism, Scott Horton and Keith Knight. Um, okay, so uh, I, I get so tired of talking about war just because it, it's so exhausting, even though it's so interesting. There, there's an old quote um, – that and it's accredited to Bastiat. I'm not sure who really started it, uh, but it said, "When goods don't cross borders, troops surely will." In other words, when it's not in your economic interest to bomb a country, you tend not to, or to invade, or to issue sanctions on them. Uh, what can you give me the case for free trade, which I can't believe we need nowadays after Adam Smith? But uh, there's a lot of protectionist talk going on in the Trump era. What is the libertarian case for free trade? Yeah, you, you, you're absolutely right. It's phenomenal that libertarians are still having to make the case for free trade after, you know, centuries where this concept of protectionism and tariffs and trade wars have just been totally debunked and destroyed. But here we are making the same argument. The, the moral case for free trade is that you own your own property, your own money. It belongs to you. You have the fundamental right to do whatever you want with your own money. Spend it anywhere you want. So if you want to buy something from somebody in Virginia, that's your right. If you want to buy something from somebody from China, that's your right. No government can legitimately interfere with what you're doing with your own money. This is part of the pursuit of happiness, which the Declaration of Independence acknowledges is a fundamental right. No government can infringe on a fundamental right, not legitimately. Uh, there's also the pragmatic arguments for free trade. It increases people's standard of living. Uh, in every trade, the both sides to the transaction benefit. How do we know this? By definition, they both benefit. Because in a trade, you're giving up something you value less and you're getting something you value more. Both traders to the transaction are doing that. They're giving up something they value less. So in every exchange, economic exchange, the standard of living pe of people is rising. Now, your point about soldiers crossing borders when goods don't is a really important one. That when, when nations have in, where, where nations have people that are interdependent economically, uh, the incentive to go to war diminishes. I mean, people have interconnections, they have contracts, they have business transactions. They're depending on each other in, in these business relationships. So war is very costly. Uh, and since since they're, they're able to freely trade, there's really no reason to go into another nation to steal what they have or whatever. Uh, it's much less costly to just buy it if, if you want it. And a classic example of what's going on right now to show you how 
practical this issue is, is in Korea. You have the you have North and South Korea uh, that are in, in a fascinating way trying to work out their differences here. And one of the one of the ways they're trying to do that is through economic relations. Uh, that they they're talking about establishing a railroad that's already there. The tracks are there. The the stations are there. They just have never been used because of this this conflict. Well, they're now talking about read uh, putting this raid railroad into existence, establishing other economic relationships. Well, if they do that, that then diminishes the tensions. You start getting friendly relations. You get business people involved in in trying to work out deals together, even if they're government owned. It, you're reducing those tensions. Ironically, the U.S. government is opposing these things. They, they've, they've put the veto on the, on the railroad deal. They're nixing other things. They're saying you're going to be violating our sanctions, which is outrageous. I mean, it, they might have to start imposing sanctions. This is what they're threatening implicitly. They're going to implicitly put sanctions on South Korea for engaging in economic transactions with the North that violate the U.S. sanctions. It's just crazy. But this is what creates mutual harmonies between people. Trade wars create tensions and conflicts and hostilities, as we're seeing now between China and the United States or Iran and the United States. When you're inflicting harm on people in a country, and that's what sanctions do, they inflict harm on people within the country, you're, then you have the incentive uh, for those people to go to war, to retaliate, blow back again. But when you have these mutual harmonies the trade is producing, those tensions diminish and the incentive to go to war diminishes as well. Yeah, I was, I, I can't believe Marco Rubio is still making the case that we need an embargo with Cuba. First of all, it doesn't work and, and the government has no right to stop people from trading. It's been like 60 years. Can you give this up? Can we start trading with them? And second, it's incredible that whenever a head of state does something, the U.S. government, or I guess most governments, but I only know, speaking about the U.S., will respond by punishing the citizens who are already under the Vladimir Putins of the world, or I don't know how bad Putin is, but Saddam certainly was terrible. So their solution is to impose sanctions and be worse than Saddam ever could have dreamed of to uh, the, to the Iraqi people. So uh, the, the sanctions, the uh, restrictive talks is, is just incredible. I remember reading Walter Block's book, uh, Defending the Undefendable, and he goes, well, if we shouldn't have trade between countries, surely it shouldn't exist between states or cities, or towns, or streets. That's the logical conclusion of all this thing in the name of protecting jobs and stopping cheap competition. Um, I, I'm curious, a lot of times uh, people will say, well, I sort of like the idea of you know having a limited government or even a volunteer society, but I mean, just look out your window. We have so many homeless people. You wrote an article called A Cure for Homelessness. I'm curious, what is the libertarian position on how to cure homelessness? Yeah, if I could, I'd go back to your point about Cuba first, because the point you raise is absolutely a fantastic one. I just would like to address this. The, 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 the embargo against Cuba has been on there since the, the Cuban Revolution when the, the, uh, Fidel Castro took power, and it really is... A, an infringement on the freedom of the American people uh, because it, it puts Americans into jail 
who travel to Cuba without official permission and spend their money there. Uh, so it, it's, it's a destruction of the economic liberty of the American people. And ironically, it's done in the name of fighting a communist regime, which is a re regime that controls people's economic activities. And it's saying, we're going to destroy the economic liberty of the American people to punish you for destroying the economic liberty of the Cuban people. And you're right, it targets the Cuban citizens. They suffer enough under Cuban socialism. They're, they're always on the verge of starvation. The embargo is like a vice. It squeezes the Cuban people even more. And, and the objective is to have the Cuban people revolt and oust the communist regime. You know, so you've got massive death and destruction like we've seen in Syria that a revolution brings. But there's this indifference. It's like, so what? Uh, that's their problem. That if, if you just put in another pro-U.S. dictator like Batista, uh, we will be happy and we'll lift the embargo. Well, this is not only the height of immorality, it's also a, the height of the destruction of freedom. Uh, so, okay, on, on zone, on, on um, homelessness, I, I, the article I wrote addressed homelessness in, in Seattle. And I was actually responding to an article by a columnist there in Seattle that was sort of mocking libertarians for their so-called solutions to homelessness. And he had a long list and he mentions me in there. And he said that I claim that the solution is to abolish the income tax. Well, I certainly do favor abolishing the income tax. It's one of the most direct assaults on American freedom that, that you could ever find. Uh, but Specifically, I wrote a response to this guy saying, look, you want to get rid of homelessness in Seattle, uh, go after zoning. I mean, the zoning is, it prohibits low-income housing in a, in a community. And, and Seattle is you know, filled with zoning and filled with leftists, of course. And of course, he hasn't responded. I mean, because how does he respond to this? That They are hopelessly wedded to, to status solutions like zoning in Seattle. Well, when you've got massive zoning, the government is going to make it such that there's no low-income housing in the community. To aggravate matters is the minimum wage. The minimum wage locks people out of the labor market, like homeless people. They can't get jobs because nobody is willing to hire them at that minimum. So they can't earn an income. They can't get low-cost housing. And so they end up homeless and you've got the leftists saying, oh, well, what are the libertarians going to say about this? Well, the libertarians say, get rid of the zoning and get rid of the, the, uh, the minimum wage. And yeah, get rid of the income tax too, so that these poor people, as they start making money, don't have to give it all to the government or a large portion of the government. And let me give you an example of this that I cited in my article. I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the poorest city in the United States, Laredo, Texas. I had a friend there who had his job was to provide low income housing for the poor. And he would get his supplies in Mexico, low cost. He'd come over and he'd build these things. And they were really nice. I mean, really clean, kind of first class. And he was always full, full occupancy. And it was very low cost housing, oftentimes temporary housing where people would earn enough money, get a little nest egg, and then put a down payment on a house. But so he was providing entry level housing for people and he was making a lot of money. He wasn't doing it out of the goodness of his heart. This guy was a, was a very wealthy man. Uh, well, that shows you how the free market answers the problem of homelessness. Now, Laredo was extremely poor, but there was no homelessness. Everybody had a place to live. Some of them were, were shacks, but there was no homelessness. You, you find the homelessness in the zone cities. 
Now, you have another quote, and I'm getting these from uh, LibertyTree.org, and I'm, I'm just going to read the beginning because it's very long. You say, in the hands of the state, compulsory public education becomes a tool for political control and manipulation, a prime instrument for the thought police of the society. Now, uh, my... Uh, in the comment section, I always get recommended readings. Uh, there's so many good books on compulsory education. John Taylor Gatto's Underground History of American Education, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America by Charlotte Thompson Iserbit, as well as Johann Fichte's Address to the German Nation. Um, I'm curious uh, how you think education can be provided when all of us living today are just so used to the state providing education. Yeah, well, another great book is our book, the Future of Freedom Foundation's book, Separating School and State by Sheldon Richmond, uh, which which got an award and um, it got fantastic reviews. And it's it's one of it's been our one of our best sellers. It's absolutely fantastic book. Look, you're right. I mean, it's like I indicated earlier, we've all grown up under a just like we've grown up under a national security state and we've been born under a national security state. We've also been born and raised under a welfare state. And, and we've been inculcated with the notion, primarily in public schools, that we live in a free enterprise country. So we, we're all taught to believe that things like public schooling, which is your very model of a socialist structure, and, and uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these socialist programs, the drug war, interventionist programs, the FDA is all part of the free enterprise system. This is the value of public schooling. This is why the state in every country demands control over the educational system, because it provides them the opportunity to mold people's minds. It indoctrinates people. This is why people are convinced that the welfare state and the warfare state is a free enterprise country. They don't have any doubts about this, but they don't realize that the reason they don't have any doubts is because their parents were forced to send them into these state institutions when they reach six years of age. I mean, there's a mandatory element of this, a compulsory element. You have to submit your children to a state approved education. Now, sometimes now, it wasn't like this when I was growing up, they, they, they will permit people to have homeschooling. There's private schools, but many private schools are just mirror images of public schools because they have to get licensed. So if they don't teach the right things, they might not get their license approved and, and they have to approve the homeschooling curriculum in most places. Uh, so is it better than, than public schooling? Of course. But there's still that element that people think, oh, with a free market and education, which is what we advocate, oh, people won't get, educate their children. Oh, everybody will be dumb. Everybody will be stupid, you know. And this is the, the, the lack of faith that people have in freedom. There's really just one solution to this whole problem, and that is separate school and state. Just like our ancestors separated church and state, we need to separate school and state, repeal mandatory attendance laws repeal compulsory taxes, repeal compulsory attendance laws, get the state out of the business of education, just like we got the, business, the state out of the business of religion, have a free market educational system. Then all of a sudden, every family can now have their children educated in different ways. Children are different from another, each other. They're, they're unique. They're one of a kind. One child might do really well in school. Another one might want to just learn on his own and study and and just get tutors and so forth. But this is the responsibility of parents. It is not the responsibility of the state. It is impossible to measure 
the damage that the state schooling system has done with these kids that are on Ritalin and Adderall and so forth. Uh, they're actually, they're diagnosed with attention deficit disorder because they're bored with the system. They're distracted by the system. They don't want any part of the system. Parents don't realize that they're acting very normally by reacting against this coercion. And so they go along with the state officials and say, oh, they need drugs. Well, you know, most, most kids just conform. It's like most soldiers conform when they get drafted. But there's a few kids that say, no, this isn't normal. I don't want part of this. They don't know why they're not conforming. They just, they instinctively do it. And unfortunately, we destroy them with things like Ritalin and Adderall. So yeah, Keith, there's only one solution to that. And that's freedom and free markets and education, healthcare, and the rest of our lives. There was a very popular tweet, uh, and it said, it was so dumb and so simple, I can't stand these things. It said, you know what's better than charity? Taxes. Now, when you're dealing with that mindset, it's so hard to even know where to start. Mr. Hornberger, what is the difference between charity and taxes? Uh, force and volunteerism. Uh, taxes are forced. If you don't pay your taxes, they will come after you. You are required by law to pay your taxes. So what happens if you don't pay your taxes? Suppose you say, well, you know, I'm never going to collect Social Security. I'm going to waive it. And so I, I'm not going to send you my Social Security taxes anymore. Uh, or I'm not going to, you know, accept any kind of welfare benefit. I'm not going to send you my income taxes this year. Well, they will come after you. They will, they will indict you criminally. They will put you in jail. They will fine you. They will seize all your assets and, and more. I mean, they, they'll, they'll charge you more than what you really owe. And they will take everything you have to satisfy their deal. That's what's called force. That's coercion. That's compulsion. Uh, and, and if you resist, I mean, if you follow this, 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 this mind experiment to its logical conclusion, if you resist paying your taxes, they'll kill you. Now, and, and the reason for that is because when they finally come to, let's say, take over your house, they've got a, a foreclosure of a lien, a tax lien on your house, and they've now sold it at the foreclosure sale. The sheriffs appear to deliver custody of your house, possession of your house to the new owner. If you resist with force, like with guns, and you say, you're not taking me out of my house, they will kill you. They will shoot you. They will call it resisting arrest and violating a court order but they will do it. That's the force of taxation. With, with charity, we're talking about voluntary action. Uh, you know, like when you're, you're going through the grocery store line and the, and the cashier says, would you like to donate a dollar to the whatever cause? You have a choice. You can say yes, or you can say no. And some people say yes, other people say no. Some people donate to their churches, others don't. Some people donate to the, you know, United Way, others don't. That's the idea of charity is that people have a right to decide yes or no. That's what freedom involves, but it's always voluntary, unlike the coercion that comes with taxation. So taxation and charity are completely opposite concepts. Keep in mind that the entire welfare state way of life is based on force. And, and the rationale that leftists sometimes use is, oh, well, this shows we're a good people. This shows that Americans are a caring and compassionate people. You've heard conservatives, you compassionate conservatism. It shows no such thing. Force and charity are opposites. The fact that the government forces people to pay their taxes and they use that money to, to pay Social Security recipients or foreign dictators or whatever, it doesn't reflect any goodness on the part of the people. It just reflects a, a, 
a system that's based on forced stealing and that really the only just system is one where people are free to decide charity issues on their own. A very long time ago, uh, Ron Paul was on the Martin Downey Jr. show and he sort of waves the idea of legalizing marijuana and, and, and stopping this war on drugs. Every single person in the audience is against him, Morton Downey Jr., while smoking a cigarette, much more dangerous than m most other illegal drugs, uh, while smoking a cigarette saying like, oh, so you want us to starve and beat kids too? Ah, and, and then they start fighting. My favorite scene is one guy says, you know, well, uh, well, you know, some of these things are bad for people. I think they should be regulated. And Ron Paul goes, well, you're pretty overweight. Maybe government should regulate you. <laughs> what is the case, the libertarian case against the war on drugs? For example, Dennis Prager and uh, Dennis Prager says, well, it would sort of lead to a degeneracy of society. People may voluntarily try crystal meth, but once they're hooked, they're hooked. They'll be poor. There will be tremendous externalities that will negatively affect others. And Coulter says, since there's a welfare state, I don't want people doing drugs and getting on welfare and the welfare state. And then we'll talk about the drug war. How do you respond? Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned Ron Paul and Morton Downey because that obviously was a long time ago. And when when I started FFF, the Future Freedom Foundation, in 1989, I had the same experience. I mean, our very first issues, monthly issues of our monthly journal, uh, Future of Freedom, which was called Freedom Daily back then, we, we published an entire month devoted to legalizing drugs and people were aghast. Uh, I could go on, I was doing a lot of radio talk shows and the callers would call in. And, and so I could light up, I knew I could always light up all the phone lines by just saying, drugs should be legalized. I mean, people were just shocked over this. The only ones who were really calling for drug legalization were libertarians and, and led by Milton Friedman. I mean, Friedman was the one that wrote an article back in Newsweek in 1972 calling for drug legalization. Well, the, the, the argument is, is twofold. One is that the freedom argument that, that look, I, I have a right to in, ingest whatever I want. It's none of the government's business. It's, it's, it's my business what I ingest. It may be harmful. It may be destructive. It may be making me obese. It may be making me sick. It may be giving me cancer or, or uh, cirrhosis. Uh, but it, whether it's alcohol, booze, heroin, cocaine, meth, opioids, it's my business. The government has no legitimate authority to put me in jail for doing something that is harmful to myself. The government's purpose is to put people in jail who are initiating violence against people, murderers, rapists, thieves, and so forth, but leave the peaceful people alone, including the people who are making choices, peaceful choices, that other people disapprove of. So that's number one argument. It's none of the government's business what I do. My freedom entails the right to do what I want with my life so long as my conduct is peaceful. But then there's the pragmatic argument. This thing doesn't work. I mean, they've been waging this war on drugs for decades, and I think everybody, including the drug warriors, will acknowledge it has not succeeded. If it had succeeded, they would be saying, well, we can now end the war on drugs. But the fact that they want to continue the war on drugs is prima facie proof that they have failed. And it, But if it was a neutral thing, that would be one thing, but it's not neutral. 
it's not benign. It has brought massive death in society. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people in Mexico disappeared, dead, yet massive violence, all because, not because of drugs, but because of the drug war. You've got uh, official corruption. You've got destruction of freedom. You've got asset forfeiture where the cops are committing literally highway robbery. They're stopping cars on the highway, especially of poor people who deal in cash and like to buy a used car or whatever. They're just stealing the money and just keeping it. No, they never bring any charges against them. They're just stealing it. You've got a mass incarceration. You have the racism aspect of this. I mean, this is the most racist government program since, since segregation. So you have all this talk in society about, oh, bigotry here and bigotry there, while the status continue in existence, the most bigoted government program since segregation. So for those two reasons, this thing's got to be ended. Now, notice the shift, though. It shows you the, the power of ideas on liberty. Today, I can't light up those phones anymore. Uh, drug legalization is on the table. You've got states thumbing their noses at the feds by legalizing marijuana. But the ultimate solution is end the war on drugs on every drug. Legalize every drug. And, and, and what does that accomplish? It puts every single drug lord, every single drug gang out of business immediately because they can't compete in a legitimate market. So what they're trying to do with prosecutions and drug busts and, and drug investigations and all this could be done instantaneously with drug legalization. It would put all these cartels out of business instantaneously. And then you've got now a more harmonious society. You got addicts that are, you know, going into pharmacies and getting clean needles and, and good quality drugs instead of polluted drugs in the black market. And you have the incentive to get well because they can be open about their addiction, transparent. They can talk to people about it. They can backtrack uh, maybe. And in, in, if they do backtrack, they don't have to worry about a narc busting them. Uh, so it's a much more humane system to talk in terms of drug legalization and, and freedom with respect to what people ingest. So a um, video uh, attempting to bash libertarianism uh, came out from AJ Plus Al Jazeera, and their, uh, the first clip they show is Larry Elder at the uh, Libertarian Presidential Convention saying, uh, do you believe that someone should need a license to drive a car? What would you say in response to that? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, when I was first discovering libertarianism, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out the answer to that one uh, and, and, and uh, seatbelt laws. And um, it, it, I was in a real quandary trying to figure out what's the right answer to this. And I think this happens to most people in libertarianism. You come up to, an, to, a, to a libertarian position or to an obstacle and you think, how does it work? How do you rationalize this? And, and I remember going to a, a seminar at the Foundation for Economic Education and I asked the seminar director there, I said, okay, what's the libertarian answer on, on seatbelts? And he didn't hesitate. He said, well, on my road, I would require people to wear seatbelts. Great answer. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's what brought up the whole idea of private roads and private highways where the owner decides the conditions under which the, the property is going to be used. And people then comply with the, the rules of the owner. If they don't like it, they can look elsewhere. Um, but once you pub make something public, then the whatever answer you come up with is going to be arbitrary. Uh, I mean, sh should there be seatbelt laws? Well, is this demanded by majority vote? 
Does the government decide this? You know, how do you reconcile this? And I don't think there's a right answer. I don't see how you can possibly come up and say, this definitely is the right answer. But once you privatize things, you say like a, a private store, let's say a private store requires people to uh, wear shirts. Uh, well, if, if the government owned it, you'd say, well, gosh, what should be the shirt policy? Well, the issue never arises in a, in a private store or private restaurant. If they say you got to wear a shirt in our restaurant, that's the way it is because they're the, the store owner. And that's what the case would be with respect to private streets and highways. Now, that reaches an entirely different issue is could the private sector handle ownership of streets and highway? Well, there's now a wealth of information and articles on that issue. And clearly the answer is yes. For uh, that, uh, Walter Block has a great book called Privatization of Roads and Highways. And there's also an interesting thing called a road printing machine that uh, I, I just uh, found out about the other day. So that's just going to drastically lower the price of road building. It's literally this thing that drives and just builds a road behind it. It's incredible. Uh, so you are the author of a book called JFK Autopsy. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson has put fo forth a challenge to people who believe in conspiracies, which is just a CIA term for shut up and uh, believe the official story. Um, so here is the challenge, and I'm going to give it to you on JFK. Give me your best pieces of information, bullet point them, or no, I'm sorry. Give me your best pieces of evidence for believing in such a conspiracy, and tell me what you would need to know or need to hear that would make you change your mind regarding the assassination of JFK. Number one, U.S. Petty Officer Sandra Spencer got a top secret security clearance in November of 1963. She is working in the U.S. Navy photography lab in Washington, D.C. She works closely with the White House. She works closely with the Kennedy administration. She developed photographs for the U.S. Navy on a top secret basis. She is summoned to testify before the Assassination Records Review Board in 1990s. No one has ever questioned the veracity, competence, or integrity of Sandra Spencer. She has shown the official photographs in the record of the Kennedy autopsy. She examines those photographs carefully. She tells the general counsel for the ARRB, a, man, a lawyer named Jeremy Gunn, no, sir. When I was on the weekend of the assassination, I was asked on a top secret classified basis to develop the autopsy photographs for John F. Kennedy. She said, I did that, but I, she kept it secret for 30 years. It was classified. As, as you know, soldiers have to keep classified information secret. The ARRB releases her from her vow of secrecy. She looks at the official photographs. She says, no, sir. Those are not the official photographs I developed on the weekend of the assassination. The ones I developed showed a massive exit size hole in the back of President Kennedy's head. Now, what does that mean? That means a shot coming in from the front, not from the rear. That testimony corroborated what all of the Dallas physicians had said, that there was a massive hole in the back of President Kennedy's head. It corroborated what Secret Service agent Clint Hill said, who was in the back of the limousine after it started heading to Parkland Hospital. He was looking at President Kennedy's wound while he was going to Parkland Hospital. He said there was a massive wound there. Two FBI agents, Francis O'Neill and James Sibbert said, there was a massive wound in the back of the Kennedy's head. 
There were witnesses in the back of the limousine who saw the back of his head blow out. They were sprayed with exit debris from the head, from the back of the limousine. The official photograph in the official autopsy record shows the back of Kennedy's head to be fully intact with no large exit hole. There is no way to reconcile this. There, there, there's just none. It all points to what is called, a, what would be called a fraudulent autopsy, a, a, an autopsy that is designed to, to deceive people as to what exactly actually happened. Let me give you another example. There was, um, in, the, in the mid-1970s, after the House Select Committee on Assassinations reopened the investigation into the Kennedy assassination, several enlisted men came forward and said, we carried President Kennedy's body in early at 6.35 p.m. in a shipping casket, like a military shipping casket, instead of the Dallas casket, the heavy ornate casket, that was actually proceeding to the north, to the front of the facility. They said, no, he, he came in early. The Assassination Records Review Board in the 90s uncovered a large amount of evidence that corroborates this. Number one, a written report from the Gawler's funeral home. They were the ones that conducted the embalming and the funeral of President Kennedy. Written report says the body was carried in in a shipping casket. Sergeant Boyajan, uh, Roger Boyajan was a Marine sergeant. His team was in charge of carrying in the shipping casket. He provided the ARRB with a written report that he had kept for 30 years in his own personal files stating we carried the body in at 6.35 p.m. instead of the 8 p.m. official time that the body was brought in at the, at the front of the morgue. Another example, the, an x-ray technician states that he is walking into the main foyer of the building where the morgue was located when Mrs. Kennedy comes in the front of the building. She has just gotten out of the limousine with the Dallas casket. He states he's got in his hand x-rays of the president's head. Well, how can he have x-rays of the president's head if the body's out in front of the, uh, the facility in the Dallas casket? And finally, here's the most important uh, proof of this phenomenon. This is what's what the law calls an admission against interest. One of the autopsy pathologists, uh, James Humes, telephones Army Lieutenant Colonel Pierre Fink at 8 p.m. Now, this is the official time that the body is being brought in under the official story in the Dallas casket, 8 p.m. When he telephones Fink, he says, we already have x-rays of the president's head. Can you please come and help us out? How can they have x-rays of the president's head when the president's body is officially being brought in at that very moment? So all of this corroborates that the body was sneaked in early. Again, pointing in the direction of a fraudulent autopsy. There is no way to, there is no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy, none. You can ponder this for the rest of your life, and I will guarantee you, you will not come up with an innocent explanation. And in this short answer, relatively short, I've just given you the tip of the iceberg. Uh, my book, The Kennedy Autopsy, goes into much more than this, and then the current series that I'm running that's now at 13 parts on our website at fff.org and on YouTube is detailing much more. There was massive fraud committed by the military on the night of November 22nd, 1963. That's why the autopsy, the fraudulent autopsy, is a key to understanding the assassination itself in the context of the assassination. If you got a fraudulent autopsy, there's got to be a reason for it. Yeah, 
you have a great article called The Fear of Being Labeled a Conspiracy Theorist in which you talk about uh, the proven conspiracies. What are some proven conspiracies? They're all over the place. I mean, you know, U.S. attorneys every day bring indictments against people in federal court. In every federal court across the land, you know, drug cases, immigration cases, and in every, practically every indictment, I would say 95% of the indictments, they, they allege in count one, a conspiracy. And, you know, you got all these conspiracies being alleged, but nobody ever calls assistant U.S. attorneys or the Justice Department conspiracy theorists. But you've got all kinds of conspiracies, especially around the Kennedy assassination. You, we don't call them conspiracies, but that's what they are. A conspiracy is simply an agreement. That's all a conspiracy is, an agreement between two people to commit a, an illegal or nefarious act. Uh, you've got the conspiracy to affect a regime change operation in Iran in 53. Uh, in 54, you have a conspiracy to affect a coup in, in Guatemala that involved assassination. Uh, they, had a, they had an assassination list there that undoubtedly included the president, the president of Guatemala. You've got a uh, conspiracy to assassinate Fidel Castro, conspiracy to enter into a conspiracy with, with the, uh, to a partnership with uh, the mafia to assassinate Fidel Castro. That was a partnership between the CIA and the mafia. You've got a, a conspiracy to affect a coup in Brazil uh, one year after the Kennedy assassination, a conspiracy to assassinate Patrice Lumumba right before Kennedy comes into office, a conspiracy in Vietnam to oust Jim, uh, the president of South Vietnam from office and murder him, a conspiracy in 73, which is a very revealing conspiracy where the national security establishment ousted the democratically elected president of Chile from office. Uh, so when we're looking at the Kennedy assassination, it's just one conspiracy of many. You, you're looking at a national security state regime change operation. No different from the regime change operations in these other countries. And, you know, nobody gets bent out of shape when you talk about, oh, they were going to assassinate Patrice Lumumba or Fidel Castro. Everybody just sort of, you know, you know, yawns. But when you say, well, they, they were faced with the same problem with Kennedy, a problem with respect to national security. And everybody go, oh my gosh, no, not my national security state. They wouldn't do it here. They only would do it in foreign countries. Well, all of the circumstantial evidence points in the direction of a regime change here. And it's and a lot of it, that evidence is oriented around that fraudulent autopsy. But now let me say one more thing here. When in, in 53, when they were planning the, the regime change in Guatemala, they, the, the, the CIA came up with an assassination manual. Now, it wasn't discovered till many, many decades later, uh, but they, it, this manual shows that they were specializing not only in assassination, but in cover-up. And there's a whole, you can see the, the, the manual online, that it, it, it actually goes into how can we do things, how can we construct things so that nobody suspects that we're involved. So they're specializing in this. So, you know, after 10, 15 years, you would naturally expect that they have become not only very proficient in assassination, but also very proficient in cover-up. And that cover-up the, with the autopsy succeeded for many years. I mean, they put a seal of concrete secrecy around it. And some of it started to leak in the mid-70s, but the big dam broke in the 1990s. But by this time, it's 30 years later, and, you know, people are somewhat relatively indifferent. But there's some of us who are saying, hey, you need to take a look at this autopsy. Because, again, there's no way 
to come with an up up with an innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy. I challenge that guy that issues that challenge. I challenge him. Tell me an innocent explanation for the fraudulent autopsy. Can't do it. So um, the CIA assassination manual, as well as Operation Mongoose, the plot to kill Castro, can be found in Jesse Ventura's great book, 63 Documents the Government Doesn't Want You to Read, as well as Operation Northwoods, a conspiracy going on around the same time. There's three things that I can't get a clear um, answer to on JFK. One, uh, was LBJ telling the Warren Commission hey, look, the Soviets did it, we know that, but that's going to start a third world war, pin it on Oswald. The second is, is the Zapruder film, Fake or Real, and was Israel involved through Permandex because Kennedy was going to uh, basically uh, investigate Demona, the Israel uh, nuclear program. Okay, what was the first one? LBJ tells the Warren Commission, we know oh, yeah. it was the Soviets, pin it on Oswald. Yeah, this is the fascinating and very, very complex part of this, of this assassination. So it, it's going to take me a little bit to explain what was happening here. I explained it in my book, Regime Change, and I'm going to be explaining it in my series. But this was a very sophisticated scheme and a very complex, which you would expect for, a, for an organization that is specializing in cover-up. I mean, this is a big operation. It has a lot of moving parts, a lot of planning going into this thing. Um, and, and part of this planning is what do we do about the autopsy? Because you see the medical examiner in Dallas County was responsible for conducting the autopsy. And he, Dr. Earl Rose is one of the most renowned pathologists in the country. And he immediately proceeds to, do, to start the autopsy on President Kennedy. And a team of Secret Service agents says, absolutely not. And they start screaming and yelling and they and they prohibit him. And he says, look, Texas law requires this. This is a this is a Texas offense. And uh, they said, no, we're not going to let you do this. And they actually brandished their guns. They pulled their coats back and showed their guns. They start screaming and yelling and they're saying they're operating under orders. So the only guy that could have issued those orders is Lyndon Johnson. Well, what are they trying to accomplish with this autopsy? Well, they're trying to accomplish, they're trying to hide the fact that shots have been fired from the front. Now, why are they doing that? Well, remember what Oswald said when he was captured. Oswald said, not only am I innocent, which is kind of interesting, he's denying his guilt, which is which goes against what the official version is, the official interpretation of his motive. They're saying he was a little man who wanted to be a big man by killing a big man. Uh, well, you know, if that's the case, then why isn't he bragging about this? How, how's that going to accomplish that purpose if he denies that he did it and he gets off because he denies that he did it? Makes no sense. But Oswald goes further and is very revealing. He says, I'm being framed. And, and every indication is that he was being framed, that he was an intelligence agency agent, that all of the stuff about being a communist is a cover. And, and the reason we have to believe that, and, and by the way, the Warren Commission was faced with that very on. They had a top secret meeting to confront the possibility and the rumor that Oswald was an intelligence agent for U.S. Navy intelligence. He was a former Marine uh, or FBI informant or CIA informant. He comes back from the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. They do nothing to him. Nothing. Look how they treat Edward Snowden. Look how they treat... Uh, John Walker Lynn, the so-called American Taliban. 
Oswald is supposedly a real communist who is supposedly given secret information to the Soviets. They don't touch him. So it's really clear that he is an intelligence agent whose cover is a communist so that he can infiltrate communist organizations or communist countries. So he's the perfect guy to frame because everybody hates communists. Uh, and, and, and if anybody comes to his defense, they can say he's a communist sympathizer. So everybody gets scared to come to his defense because they're going to be called a communist sympathizer. So it's the perfect scheme. Frame the communist. All right. But if you're going to frame a guy, why why have shooters from the front? If you're going to shoot, if you're going to frame a guy in the back, doesn't it stand to reason that you're going to have shooters from the back? Why have an autopsy where you're trying to hide the fact that shots have been fired from the front? In, in order to frame a guy with shots having been fired from the rear, supposedly. See, that doesn't make sense, right? It's counterintuitive. But actually, it goes to the very brilliance of the scheme. It, it was absolutely ingenious. What they did was, and they knew there were shots from the, from the front because the do Dallas doctors had a press conference an hour after Kennedy was declared dead and said, the throat wound was an entry wound. You got the massive hole in the back of the head. Well, if, if Oswald, see, they needed to shut down this investigation. They couldn't afford an extensive investigation of this crime because it would lead to the national security state. So they had to figure out a way to get it shut down. This is how they got it shut down. They've got the shooter in the rear and also shooters from the front, you see, because they got the throat wound and the exit wound in the back. Well, who are his Confederates? It has to be Cuba and the Soviet Union. Who else? He's a communist. He's been to Mexico City and, and he had done all this communist proselytizing. Well, what does that mean? That means the communists have now killed Kennedy. That means nuclear war. So this is right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So if, if we're going to retaliate, how are we going to retaliate? By bombing the, the, the Kremlin? Well, we're now looking at nuclear war. But you see, the CIA was the one that started the assassination business. So Johnson sits there and says, oh, well, we can't go to nuclear war. we got to shut this thing down. We're the ones that started this. Castro is just retaliating. And so we have to shut this thing down, pin it on the guy that we know did it, and let the communists off the hook. And in the process, totally shut down an investigation that will lead to us. And that's how they got this thing shut down, by claiming national security to the Warren Commission, to, to anybody that mattered, like the autopsy physicians, national security. We have to protect the country from the possibility of nuclear war. And that's how they did it. That's how ingenious this plan was. And uh, I, I, I get that we're running low on time, but is there anything to, uh, you know, Dan Rather came out and said, I saw the president's head go violently forward. Was Is the Zapruder film a fake or is Dan Rather a liar? That is a fascinating question. And there's a lot of been written on it. I recommend people uh, read what Douglas Horn has written on it. He's He was on the staff of the Assassination Records Review Board. He's also authored a book for us called um, JFK's War with the National Security Establishment, Why Kennedy Was Assassinated. And he's got a five volume book called Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. What happened on the weekend of the assassination is that Life magazine buys the Zabruder film from the, from Abraham Zabruder, a Dallas businessman, for the equivalent of about a million dollars in today's money. Well, everybody thought that the that the film went to Life magazine on the weekend of the assassination, but the ARRB discovered that it actually got diverted to CIA uh, to the CIA photography lab in in Washington. And then for some reason, 
it gets shipped on, on the same weekend of the assassination to the super top, top secret photography lab that the CIA is running in Rochester, New York. Now, the, there's been speculation, what's happening here? There's been speculation that the CIA saw this film and realized that there were very incriminating aspects to it. Um, like a, there was multiple witnesses that said the limousine made a complete stop at, after the first shot. Well, the film doesn't show a complete stop. And so there's been, well, you know, people have wondered, were frames removed? Well, you got uh, uh, you know, Dan Rather's statement saying, we saw the, the, the body shoot forward. Well, Dan Rather's a good reporter. I mean, he, 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 even back then, I mean, this guy's starting his career on it. It'd be a massive mistake to make, but the Zabruder film doesn't show anything like that. It shows back and to the left. So the, the, the question that Horn has raised and many others have raised is, did the CIA alter it by removing frames? And if they did, the only place they could have done it was at their Rochester, New York plant uh, facility. Because in Washington, they could watch the film and they made briefing boards of the film. They, 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 they took they enlarged frames and they showed them to people there in the CIA and whoever else they needed to show it to. And then they take the film for some unknown reason, they've never explained it, to Rochester, which had the facility of altering films. And there's no, there's no explanation as to why it went to Rochester. And then a film that was purported to be the original, which is called the extant film, that may not be the original original, was brought back to Washington and then, then new briefing boards were made. So I'm not enough of an expert to say that this definitely happened, that frames were removed. Uh, there are some odd things like the driver turns around to, the, to look at President Kennedy and people said that his head turned so fast that it's impossible to reproduce, that nobody can turn their head that fast, uh, which would indicate the removal of frames. But is it possible? It certainly is possible. Uh, did it happen? I'm not much of an expert to be able to say it definitely happened, but it's certainly worth examining. And, and the CIA should be required to, to, to explain what they did in New York. What was the reason for taking it to that facility when they, they could easily see the film and did see the film at their facility in Washington? Did Oswald kill uh, Officer J.D. Tippett? No. There's, there, the, the eyewitness testimony there is so shady and so unbelievably bad uh, that when you look at all of the, the witnesses, there's just no way to conclude that Oswald was the one who did this. Uh, and it, it just it, it, it makes no sense. I mean, they found shell casings from, from different guns there. I mean, why would a guy have different, different bullets for his gun? Uh, now, what? then you also have the odd uh, thing of a police car honking in front of Oswald's house while he's changing his shirt or something like that, uh, which nobody can explain that either. So the, the, the Tippett the murder is shrouded in mystery and secrecy, but there is no question that they never could have convicted him based on eyewitness testimony. There were too many contradictions. Some people even said there were two people there. With, with Tippett. And so when I say no, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that there's no way that, that there's sufficient evidence to, to convict Oswald of that particular crime. Just the, the, the evidence is just not there. 
All right. Well, I want to thank you for being generous with your time. I just have two more questions for you. Um, the, the last book that made a lot of noise that I heard of was called Final Judgment by Michael Collins Piper. He says Clay Shaw was a Permandex agent uh, for Israel for Israeli nuclear arsenal facilities, that Kennedy was going to inspect Demona, and uh, Israel wanted to keep their nukes a secret, which was later exposed by a guy named Mordecai Venunu. Uh, do you think there's any credence to uh, Mossad involvement in Kennedy's assassination? No. Uh, and again, it goes back, that this is why I always start with the autopsy. There is no question that the Mossad had nothing to do with the autopsy. The mafia had nothing to do with the autopsy. Fidel Castro had nothing to do with the autopsy. The Soviets had nothing to do with the autopsy. You've got a fraudulent autopsy. Now, there's no question. This is the one undisputed fact that everybody agrees on. The military conducted the autopsy. And so once you establish that there's a fraudulent autopsy, that inevitably leads you to ask why. What's the purpose of a fraudulent autopsy? And the fact that it was the military that conducted the autopsy then leads you to the assassination. And so that when you can exclude the Mossad and the and the, the mafia and Castro and the Soviets from the autopsy, that leads you but to one conclusion, and that's the national security establishment. That's why it's always best when you're when you're trying to solve a case based on circumstantial evidence, start with the undisputed facts. And the undisputed there's two undisputed well there's one undisputed fact: the military conducted this autopsy. Second, the circumstantial evidence overwhelmingly establishes it. This was a fraudulent autopsy. So the question then arises, why? Why would the US military on the very day of the assassination conduct a fraudulent autopsy? That inevitably gives you the answer. All right, and if you could have everyone in the world read one book, what would that one book be? Oh boy, that's a good one. Uh, I would say, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, uh, or, or Economic Policy by Ludwig von Mises. Uh, I think either of those books, if, if, if I had to choose, those are the two best books I would ever recommend. Well, Mr. Hornberger, thank you so much for your time. I know a lot of people have clubs and organizations who watch this channel. I actually uh, got the pleasure of meeting uh, Jacob when he came and spoke at a dinner I was at. It was terrific, uh, not only his speech, but his uh, answering of the Q&A. We even had a neocon in the audience that he uh, was very uh, respectful to and uh, I, I think uh, came pretty close to changing your mind. So uh, th thank you again, uh, for being so generous with your time, Mr. Hornberger. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Keith. This has been fantastic, a real pleasure. You're a great interviewer. You, you give the person a chance to say his answers, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on.